Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. The Premier did not come to Ottawa during the the occupation. Tonight on Primetime Politics, a hard no from Doug Ford. After serious questions were raised, the Rouleau inquiry is summoning the Ontario Premier and his former Solicitor General, but in a quick response, both have made it known they will fight the summons. Also, are rising interest rates targeting the true cause of inflation or just hurting average Canadians? We'll get some reaction to comments made by the federal NDP leader. And this really is a restructuring. Premier Danielle Smith has her new cabinet, but is it enough to turn around her party's political fortunes? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. The Ontario Premier says he will not answer a summons to appear before the Rouleau inquiry. As you will recall, the action or inaction of the Ontario government has come into question at the Commission looking into the invocation of the Emergencies Act. Now, Justice Rouleau wants to hear from both Doug Ford and Sylvia Jones, who at the time of the convoy protest was Ontario's Solicitor General. But in a swift response, both are saying no. CPAC's Martin Stringer has our top story tonight. Martin, good to see you. Quite the development out of the inquiry today. Well, that's right, Michael. Both the Premier and Minister Ford have said that they will refuse these summons. They will challenge them in court. Now, this issue has come up several times already before the Commission. Uh, the issue of getting both Premier Ford and the then Solicitor General to appear came up last week when Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson testified that uh, he talked about his frustration in a phone conversation with the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. Frustration that Premier Ford wasn't getting directly involved in a tripartite table, which had been set up in February uh, to try to deal with this crisis here in Ottawa. Now, the Commission lawyers today released a press release saying that they had extended, they had sent out this summons to the Premier and the former uh, Solicitor General uh, saying that they felt that they had important information to contribute to the Commission. Well, no sooner had that announcement been made that we heard from Premier Ford's office that no, they would be challenging the summons on the basis of parliamentary privilege. That's the principle which prevents parliamentarians from being obliged to appear before the courts. So that's where things stand now. Well, with his reaction to this latest development, we're now joined by Joel Hardin. He is the member of Ontario's provincial parliament for the riding of Ottawa Centre, where, of course, the protests did take place earlier this year. Uh, Mr. Hardin, thanks for being with us again. Pleasure to be here. Listen, I want to begin with your reaction to what we've now heard from both Mr. Ford and Ms. Jones, uh, their decision to, to fight the summons. Why the people of Ontario have every right to be asking what does the Premier and the former Solicitor General have to hide? I asked the same question, Michael, myself in the legislature in question period a number of months ago, and evidently the Premier and the Solicitor General do not feel it's worth their time to stand before this commission and reveal to the commissioner what they knew. Did the Premier know? how serious this convoy was. Did they know its leadership was infiltrated by people who sought the overthrow of Canada? It sounds ridiculous to say, but that's that's in fact true. What we've learned in this inquiry is that the OPP knew very well how serious the leadership of this movement was. I wanna know, as does a lot of folks, what did the Premier and the Solicitor General know and why did they refuse to participate? 
in some of the interjurisdictional tables the prime minister was pulling together. In fact, the words that I remember hearing read out from evidence is that the premier didn't believe those meetings, Michael, were worth his time. Why is that? Well, the big question as to the why as well. But, you know, Ontario is making other representations to the Commission. Will those representations not get to the point that you're hoping to hear? Look, the people that Ontario is putting up uh, to testify at the Commission are high-ranking public sector advisors to the Premier and Solicitor General. That's fine. But really, the buck stops with decision makers. The buck stops with us. And the Premier said baldly that he had not been asked by the Commission. He has been asked for interviews several times, and we know today through a letter from the commission lawyers that he has refused every single one of them. So look, here's the thing. The premier and the solicitor general, former solicitor general, they have a choice. They can do the honorable thing, appear before the commission, or I am gonna be up in question period tomorrow demanding on behalf of the people of Ottawa Centre and everywhere else, what do they have to hide? Why will they not do what the prime minister is doing, what Mayor Watson has done, the honorable thing is to let us know what you knew at one of the worst moments uh, in our city's history. What I know, having been a politician in that time, Michael, is that I feel the Premier abandoned us, and I want to know why. Now, the inquiry has only until the end of November to complete its work before writing a report for Parliament. Uh, the Premier and Ms. Jones, uh, who is now the Ontario Health Minister, we should point out, they're fighting the summons in court. Do you think that will make its way to court in time for them to appear? What's your read of the situation? I'm, I'm not a lawyer, Michael, uh, but what I do know is what passes the sniff test for the public. What does not pass the sniff test for the public is that the Premier was not asked to participate. We now had evidence, cold evidence today from the Commission lawyers. They have been asked to participate. They have refused. So we have every right to know why are they refusing. I also want to know, Michael, why didn't the Premier use his powers long before the Emergencies Act was declared? as they did in Quebec, to revoke the license plates and insurance policies for these tractor-trailer trucks. Why didn't they do that? Why did they feel the Emergencies Act was necessary? Because it wasn't necessary in Quebec. They saved a lot of heartache in Quebec. But again, this is what we're going to find out through this inquiry. Why was the Premier asleep at the switch? Why was he snowmobiling with friends at the cottage while we were undergoing a siege of our city? Joel Hardin, thank you for the time today. It's my pleasure. And we also want to make a note here. We did reach out to the Ford government in hopes of securing an interview. We did not receive an answer in time for tonight's broadcast. On Wednesday, the Bank of Canada is expected to once again hike up interest rates, with some analysts expecting an increase of another 75 basis points. Now, that would bring the bank's benchmark rate to 4%, all part of the bank's strategy to discourage spending and thereby bring down inflation. But is the bank targeting the right cause of inflationary pressure? Well, the federal NDP leader does not think so. Jagmeet Singh writing to the Prime Minister and saying the bank needs to ease up on its interest rate hikes. Well, with more, we are now joined by Francesco Cerbera, the Liberal MP for the riding of Vaughan Woodbridge in Ontario, also the Conservative finance critic, Jazraj Halan, who is also the MP for the riding of Calgary Forest Lawn in Alberta, and NDP environment critic, Laurel Collins, the MP for Victoria, of course, in British Columbia. Hello to the three of you. Good afternoon. Thanks for having us. So, Ms. Collins, I'm going to ask you to start us off. Uh, what point is your leader trying to make with this letter? 
Well, I think we know that there are many causes to inflation, but one of the causes that the government has been ignoring is corporate greed. And our party has been pushing the government to take action. You know, Canadians right now are struggling. They're having to make really difficult choices because the cost of groceries, the cost of food has been going up and up and up. And when Canadians are struggling this way, and when they look and they see CEOs making millions of dollars each year, when they see corporate profits, you know, reaching record highs, they expect their government to take action. And so we not only want the government to be investigating to ensure that we hold these corporations accountable, uh, but also it would be good to see the government take on corporate greed in a real way, implement a excess profits tax, a windfall profits tax, so that we can reinvest that money in supporting Canadians who are struggling right now. But he's also making the point for the Bank of Canada to ease up on its interest rates, is he not? Yeah, you know, I think at a time when uh, Canadians are are seeing interest rates go up, many Canadians hold debt right now. You know, the answer uh, to rising inflation is not to make the people who are struggling uh, to have increased costs. We want to make sure that we actually support the people who need it most right now and hold the ultra-rich, you know, the people at the very, very top accountable and make sure that they pay their what they owe. And it's another reason why we've been calling for the government to close the tax loopholes. We know that uh, according to the parliamentary budget officer, mm -hmm. the government lost $25 billion because there are loopholes in our tax system. And it means that corporations and wealthy CEOs are getting away with billions of our, our taxpayer dollars. Okay, let me jump in and bring in Mr. Cerbera there, because I would imagine there are Canadians who, who hear the points that Ms. Collins is making and nodding in agreement. So what's your response to all of that? Oh, thank you, Michael, for the question, and, and to my NDP colleague, uh, yeah, and the CPC as well. Uh, look, we, we know Canadians at this time are, are feeling the squeeze uh, from inflation, which we know is a global phenomenon. And we know we need to put in place, and we have put in place, targeted investments to help Canadians. We know we're going to be doubling the GST uh, rebate over the next six months, and the Canadians will receive that before the end of the year. Uh, the rental benefit, $500 to nearly 2 million Canadians to assist them. We'll put in place the top up or the 10% increase to the seniors old age security, benefiting over oh, nearly 4 million seniors across the country, almost $800 a year. So we are, our approach is very, very, very straightforward. Let's do targeted investment, help those Canadians that have been impacted by the global phenomenon of inflation, appropriate fiscal policy, maintaining a Canada's strong um, fiscal framework. At the same time, making sure there's no such thing as what I call crony capitalism taking place that giving the tools to the competition bureau so they can investigate if there is collusion, if there is anything going on that we need to take action on. Absolutely. In terms of, you know, I know the NDP has commented on this about uh, increasing taxes. Look, the first thing we did when we entered government in 2015 is we asked, we asked the super wealthy or the wealthiest Canadians to pay a little bit more. And we did so. And we gave a tax cut to middle class Canadians. Again, this, this time around, we put in a higher corporate tax rate for several corporations, which will raise billions of dollars to assist Canadians that, that are in need. We're doing that. We don't want to politicize the Bank of Canada. That's that's the wrong thing to do. That is an irresponsible thing to do. And we will not do that. We have fiscal policy, which is within our control. We'll continue acting. We'll continue acting prudently. Okay, Mr. Halan, what do you make of all of that? Well, well thank you for having me on the show. And, and it's clear to see that uh, both the Liberals and the NDP, this costly coalition, both don't think about monetary policy. 
this is the same government uh, that has caused us to be in this position in the first place. The this overspending, uh, you know, uh, leave it in the ground government and this costly coalition has continually attacked Canadians. Uh, we see a symptom of a bigger problem today. The symptoms are gas inflation, food inflation. We see uh, housing inflation, rent inflation, and what's the cause of it? Just inflation. That's the actual cause of it. The mon- the government has continued to borrow on the backs of Canadians without having any type of fiscal plan to get us our books back in order. And today we see what has happened. It's easy to say that this is a global phenomenon and that's easy to take that away. But if you don't want to take it from the Conservatives, you don't have to look any further than the Bank of Canada governor who says that inflation is homegrown. And let's take that one step further. The former Bank of Canada governor, uh, someone that could be Mr. Sorbera's future uh, boss, Mark Carney has also said this is a domestic issue. The problem is is government greed. And it's too bad that the Kossi coalition continually attacks Canadians. We put a forward a motion today to help Canadians lower the cost of their home heating. We've seen home heating gone up between 50 and 100%. It's going to go up. And instead of helping Canadians, this Kossi NDP Liberal Coalition voted against it, not wanting to help the people in Atlantic Canada, even though the Liberal Premier has called on this. The Liberal Premier from Newfoundland and Labrador has asked for this, and the Conservatives stood up for their constituents. The Liberal government has not. So all these policies, uh, suggestions aside, and initiatives aside, I, I do want to get to a point that uh, Mr. Sarbera addressed a little bit, Ms. Collins. In that, does Mr. Singh risk interfering with the Bank of Canada's mandate by the policies aside that you've laid out? He is still criticizing its decisions when it comes to the benchmark rate. You know, I think uh, looking at what the Bank of Canada decides to do and speaking out in terms of uh, ensuring that we support Canadians in a time where they are struggling, there's nothing wrong with that. We're not saying uh, for the government to intervene, to overstep or to politicize the Bank of Canada. What we're really saying is that Canadians are struggling right now and corporate profits are rising at twice the rate of inflation. This is a problem. And when you have a government and you know the opposition, the conservative opposition, completely ignoring one incredibly important role, uh, you know, one important, incredibly important uh, reason that inflation is happening, this is a problem and Canadians can see that it's a problem. They want their government to take action. And it's why, you know, we want to ensure that there is uh, a, a probe, an investigation, inquiry into into price gouging, into, into grocery store um, price fixing, if that's happening. And it's also why we're asking the government to take real action with a windfall profits tax, with um, you know solutions and. Okay, Remember, let, you know, let me jump in. I'm office. sorry, just quickly writing down, but Mr. Helen, I'm going to get you to jump in because your leader has questioned the bank's past decisions as well. What's your thought on the matter about uh, addressing the bank, whether or not that inter- intervenes with its mandate? Well, it's simple to see that the, the bank has not kept up with its own mandate. I mean, their mandate is simple. Keep inflation below 2%. Um, and but what we've seen is the Bank of Canada act like in an ATM machine that let Justin Trudeau print and borrow as much money as he would have liked. And, and now Canadians are suffering for that. Uh, we saw during uh, pan- the pandemic, there was almost $200 billion that was non-pandemic related spending. And what did that do? It draw- drove up the cost of everything. 
and the the Bank of Canada is having to raise its interest rates because of just inflation. Again, the symptom is the the rates going up, but the real problem is just inflation. The more Justin Trudeau continues to borrow on the backs of Canadians, the more everything becomes more and more expensive for people, and Canadians are getting pushed more and more into food banks that we're seeing. The usage for our homeless shelters are going up as well. People can't. People are starting to skip meals because of this. This is all on Justin Trudeau and the bad policies, and it's too bad the NDP continues to prop up the Liberal government. Okay, last word to you, Mr. Cerbera. you got one minute left. What do you make of this discussion, considering the, the concerns being raised by both uh, opposition members to government policy and not helping where they think the government should be? Thank you, Michael. First of all, it's completely irresponsible for the opposition leader to call for the firing of the Bank of Canada governor, which he, ha which he has. It's completely irresponsible to politicize the Bank of Canada in any manner. They've, they've been independent in our country's history. They have a job to do. They have the tools that they, they need, and they'll continue to do that, and we should hold them in, high, in a high degree of respect. We should also help Canadians, though. Uh, I know when we go to the grocery store, we see the price of lettuce, we see the price of, of food items, energy. We know that th there's a global phenomenon of inflation. Our government is acting. We are helping Canadians. And we also remember during COVID, we had the backs of Canadians and we had to assist them and we assisted our economy. We came roaring back versus other countries and our economy is strong. Unemployment is very low. At the same time, we we're dealing with global phenomenon of inflation. We'll let the Bank of Canada do what it needs to do. At the same time, we Quickly. will be fiscally good managers. We will have targeted investments to help those Canadians that are the most vulnerable and being impacted by inflation. And we'll be there every day, every day and every step of the way. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Never enough time to have these discussions. We really appreciate the three of you showing up today. Francesco Cerbera, Jezraj Halan, and Laurel Collins, thank you very much for the time. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. We've done a major reorganization of government that took a, a long time and a lot of hours. And we have to, to make sure that we've got the restructuring of government uh, going on. So we have to affirm some of those decisions. And then we also have to, I'll be working on writing out the mandate letters for each of the cabinet ministers. There's so much that's been accomplished. There were 375 items that were put in the platform. I believe that we've accomplished 300 of them. We have to see which others we can accomplish before we get into the election. Um, I'll be consulting with my ministers to see what their priorities are. And then there were also a number of issues that were raised by the leadership candidates during the campaign. So all of that has to be put into a mandate document, which will probably come out in the next week or two. That'll be the next priority. Thank you. And I should also say, I'll be spending a lot of time down in Brooks Medicine Hat because I still have to win a seat. <laughs> Well, that was the Alberta Premier Danielle Smith speaking to reporters right after her cabinet was sworn in today. But while such an event might be seen as a potential unifier, Premier Smith's ongoing criticism of Alberta Health Services and continuing talk of a Sovereignty Act has pundits wondering about the impact it will have on her party's popularity and its electability in 2023. Well, joining us now is political columnist Graham Thompson. Graham, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Now, when you and I last spoke, uh, you had noted the fact that when Daniel Smith was elected UCP leader, that you noted she had essentially capitalized uh, on pandemic anger to help secure that vote. Now that she has chosen and witnessed her cabinet being sworn in, is she building on that anger or is this a pivot? It's not a pivot. You know, she's saying I'm not pivoting. And we're digging into it and we're trying to figure out, is she pivoting? When it comes to um, healthcare, certainly not. Like she was very angry during the leadership race, even before that, 
saying, you know, blaming um, Alberta Health Services and the Kenny government are going too far in the pandemic restrictions. So I guess you could say that she's pivoting away from blaming Kenny and his cabinet and pivoting just to attacking Alberta Health Services. So this is a way, because look, her, her, her cabinet is made up of people who were elected under the Kenny banner in 2019. So she has to say, yeah, you really can't blame them for all the problems in the health system dealing with the pandemic. It's really the fault of Alberta Health Services. And so she's pushing ahead uh, with this cabinet to really punish Alberta Health Services, firing the board, she says, replacing managers uh, that are not towing her line and also um, elevating the rights of the unvaccinated to the same level under Alberta's Human Rights Act as people who face real discrimination based on things like race. So it's not really a pivot except the pivot away from attacking the Kenny cabinet, the Kenny government, because many of them um, are in her cabinet now. It's a big cabinet, by the way, mm -hmm. um, 27 members. That's the biggest in Alberta history, one of the biggest in the country. And this is her keeping her friends close and her enemies closer. Five of the leadership um, candidates uh, out of the six who ran against her are all in cabinet. Well, let this me pick up. Of, well, let me pick yeah. up on that point because it is interesting when you look at her cabinet. A mix of the tried and the true, along with supporters that got her to her post. Is this a team that can work? Is this a team that can unite what has been an uneasy marriage still between the former Progressive Conservatives and the former uh, Wild Rose Party in the province? Yeah, it's interesting how you know being in government is a very powerful glue. You'll have people who were lambasting her just days ago at the in cabinet saying, oh, listen, you know, we're, we're united. It's a great, great party. I was at the UCP convention on the weekend in Edmonton. And even though on the surface, a lot of support, uh, 2,000 members there, many of them standing ovations uh, for her speech, especially in the Sovereignty Act, standing up to, to Ottawa, but also um, uh, punishing Alberta Health Services. But behind the scenes, you scratch the surface, you got people who voted for other leadership candidates being very cautious they're saying we're being cautiously optimistic that she can turn things around but uh, this is a party that's still divided this is still a leader who's only been in the job now two weeks trying to show unity trying to show excitement for the upcoming election in, in may is it going to work it's just a matter of time will tell Mm -hmm. Time will tell, and if the polls right now will tell as well, because right now when you look at those numbers, they continue to put Notley's NDP ahead of Smith and the UCP. The next vote, as you know very well, legislated to be in the spring. So what are the pitfalls that Smith needs to be wary of between now and the election period? Well, you know, a disunity within the party. Um, but I would say a lot of the problems are self-generated, which is constantly making comments that are based on conspiracy theories. These are ideas she brought forward, which was a, a, a talk show host on radio. She's still spreading these this misinformation uh, about, for example, she said that the um, those who were unvaccinated, willfully unvaccinated in Alberta face it, faced the most discrimination she's ever seen in her lifetime of 51 years. A ridiculous comment, but that goes to who she is. And the biggest problem, and it has been for Smith in the past when she was leader of the Wild Rose and lost the 2012 election to the Progressive Conservatives back then, was her own lack of judgment, making comments, standing by people who clearly were not, um, should not be in government. So this is, to me, the biggest challenge for her is herself, her propensity to hold on to conspiracy theories, unscientific reasoning just to play to a base. So that base got her elected as uh, chosen as leader uh, a few weeks ago, that that base does not represent 
most Albertans, and she has to convince Albertans that she is the one to, to win another election. There's a poll right now, you're right. The polls are showing that Rachel Notley, NDP leader, is far more trusted, far more popular than Smith herself. So she right now is the big problem for the UCP. Graham Thompson, thank you so much for the time. You're very welcome. The United Kingdom will soon have a new prime minister. Earlier today, Rishi Sunak became the ruling Conservative Party's newest leader. And when he is officially invited to form a government, he will become the UK's first leader of colour, first Hindu to hold that office, and the youngest prime minister in more than 200 years. But while that has been noted today, perhaps the biggest point of discussion is the financial mess that he is inheriting from Liz Truss the woman who became Prime Minister just seven weeks ago. Joining us now is Aubrey Allegretti, political correspondent for The Guardian in London. Hello, Aubrey. Hello. So thank you for joining us. Uh, uh, obviously, uh, Richie Sunak is now the Conservative leader, but not yet the Prime Minister. Can you go over uh, the transition of power and what we know so far about the next few days? Yes, absolutely. Well, there is a template for this because we've had quite a, quite a few transfers of power in recent years in the UK. But Rishi Sunak is expected, it's not confirmed yet, but expected to go to Buckingham Palace on Tuesday in order to be received by King Charles to be confirmed as the new king. A few minutes before him, Liz Truss will obviously go for a similar audience and she'll tender her resignation. So that's what we'll expect straight away. There will also probably be cabinet appointments the same day. There is a looming fiscal event on the 31st of October on Halloween, which the government is probably very keen to stick to. And there's a lot riding on in terms of market stability. So I imagine Rishi Sunak will want to get all of his policies kind of ready, all of his ministers in place so that he can meet that deadline and be ready for the big fiscal event on the 31st of mm -hmm. October. Mm -hmm. The 31st being this uh, fiscal update from the government. But you know, uh, Sunak, in the brief statement that he made today, he, he does acknowledge that he faces, the country faces some huge uh, challenges. Uh, talk to us about the tough times ahead that he seems to be referring to. What kind of road lies ahead for Britons under a Sunak government? Well, there are very many economic challenges that he's going to be inheriting, not least inflation, which in the UK stands at around 10%, the high costs of borrowing and the bog standard cost of living crisis that millions of people across the country are feeling being compounded by the war in Ukraine, meaning that energy bills are particularly high at the moment. All of those issues are not going to go away and Rishi Sunak will have to have some quite serious answers to them, which may include tax rises and public spending cuts, which are going to make him uh, probably a little bit more unpopular in the eyes of the public. Mm -hmm. Now, he is the third Tory leader, soon to be the third prime minister this year alone. You talk about the tough policies that are expected from him and how that might affect his popularity. I'm wondering less about the popularity amongst the general public, but more within the caucus itself, within the Tory party. Is Sunak here to stay? Well, we all thought Liz Truss might be and Boris Johnson before her and maybe even Theresa May before that. So it's hard to predict with any certainty. However, there is a deep desire from most Conservative MPs to stop becoming what they think are stars in a sort of long running political soap opera. 
and they would really like it if somebody could sort of come in and steady the ship, which is exactly what Rishi Sunak is designed to do. During the summer leadership contest that Liz Truss won, he was derided by his critics and labelled as sort of the, the the embodiment of treasury orthodoxy. I suspect that's something that he will wear as a badge of pride now. But speaking to Conservative MPs today, I ask much of them the same question. Do you think the Conservative Party will pull itself out of this spiral of disunity? And the answer you get is not a resounding yes. Usually it's, it can, I hope so, or it has to. Whether or not it actually will, we'll have to wait and see. Mm -hmm. Now, he has basically said no to holding an election, which opposition Labour have been demanding of him, uh, essentially uh, trying to get a mandate from the people directly. Can he continue to resist that call, do you think? Well, the Prime Minister in this country has the power to call a general election pretty much whenever they want, and there are at least another two years until the deadline for that is reached. I think the final point it could possibly be called is January 2025, so a very long way off. However, I think he's going to have some difficulty explaining to the public why the Conservatives have been able to change leader twice since the last general election. There are MPs in his own party who are, have been deeply critical of him in public and are saying openly that there is no mandate for him and he should has no choice but to call a general election. I think it's also harder to explain to the public why the Conservative Party is itself able to change leaders, but the country is not allowed to decide whether or not that new leader is the right one. Aubrey, really appreciate uh, your time today. Thank you for this. Thank you. And that is political correspondent Aubrey Allegretti. And that is tonight's program. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for joining us. I'm Michael Serapio. We'll see you again tomorrow.